Welcome to How It's Med, a podcast about medical innovators and case breakers. My name is Abdo. And I'm Jeff. Together, we explore the exciting stories of leaders in medicine and in the medtech industry. Hey, Abdo, do you know what the contraction for the word abdomen is in medical lingo? I swear to God, Jeff, if you tell me this joke one more, it's high Moving on. Abdo surgery or otherwise, surgical recovery takes time and if prolonged can cost around $1,100 a day for acute care, just for the bed itself. That's why Dr. Joshua Liu came up with Seamless MD and skipped over the whole residency process. Since the inception of his company, the likes of Trillium Health Partners, Stanford Health Systems, and more have partnered with his company to confront the rising costs of our healthcare systems. Wow, $1,100 a day. That's a lot of money. Do you know what else is wild? The contraction of abdomen medical oh, oh God. You know what? Let's just start. Let's just start. Going back to what you've done with Seamless, one question that I had when you were talking about the premise, the, the need statement, which is that the illest people are at home and you want to prevent readmissions, which are costly. What? led to this movement over the years to a lack of home calls? What led to your need statement there? Yeah. So, so just, just to clarify that, I mean, the supporting patients, you know, who are homebound elderly and house calls is, is not quite kind of the, the same uh, problem space specifically that CLS yeah. is in today, but it's certainly yeah, from yeah. my interest point of view, kind of where we started. Um, I, I, I would say kind of, um, and I'll say, honestly, it, it was a bit accidental, right? So kind of how we started the company was, um, you know, I was starting my fourth year of med school and, um, I, you know, I had heard about, well, actually I'll, I'll back a bit further. Again, it goes back to being interested in building stuff. So, and, and this is one of the stories that doesn't get talked about, right? Because people only hear about Seamless MD, the company that exists today. No, no one here, no one has heard about my health memo, the company that did quite make it. Uh, so, you know, in my, my third year of med school. I had, you know, two other friends from, from med school who were also interested in, you know, business and starting something. So we actually tried starting a different healthcare technology venture. And the basic idea was, well, what if we could automate taking a medical history of a chief complaint, um, prior to a clinical encounter with the physician, so that way during the actual encounter. Um, the clinician already knows what the story is. They already have the symptoms documented and we can actually make the encounter shorter. More patients could be seen. Um, we can increase throughput in the clinic, et cetera. And so we had this idea of creating a web-based application to kind of ha ask the patient a bunch of questions in advance, use intelligent branching to kind of, you know, collect the symptom data and then basically give reports to the doctor before the visit. It's streamlined this whole process. We spent four to five months on this idea. Um, you know, talking to physicians, talking to, you know, entrepreneurs and investors and, and all that never built anything. Um, and we gave up after four to five months. And one of the biggest challenges that we had was that we were all clinical people. None of us could be built a prototype, right? Mm -hmm. um, none of us could even honor and get something into the hands of a user. Um, and so when I started my fourth year of med school, I started an itch to, again, like build something. I wasn't working on anything new at the time. And I'd heard about this incubator program called Next 36. Um, today, um, the name of the, the organization is called Next Canada. And um, basically what's, and I'd heard about it because I had some 
friends from, I think, high school or, or other things who had been through this program, so shown up on their social media. And so I applied for this incubator on a whim. And the way the incubator works is um, they select 36 people um, from across Canada who are either about to graduate or recently graduated and basically put three of those people into a team together to start a company um, over the span of eight months. And you start this while you're in school. And so basically I applied for this on a whim, mostly because um, I was hoping to find people who had skills as I did it. And um, cause my challenge before was that, well, no one here was, was a developer. So how could we build a software product? And so it was through next, um, 36 that I met my co-founders, um, you know, Willie and Phil, who both came from a, a comp sign engineering background. And so when you, um, the way that you get into the program is you apply online, they narrow down to 72 finalists. They fly 72 to Toronto in December. And then over, I think a two-day period, they whittle it down to 36 after a bunch of interviews. And then once they pick the 36, you get put into teams of three. And then on that first day when I met, you know, I, I met Phil William in the process, but the first day that you're, you kind of just put you to a team, they said, okay, you have 24 hours to come up with a business and then pitch it to a bunch of mentors and investors 24 hours from now. Intense. Intense. And so, I mean, after going through a bunch of ideas, I, I forget exactly how it happened, but I was like, Hey, you know, guys, like we all want to do something in healthcare. I think that's kind of what uh, brought us together and said, you know, I've been studying this readmission problem, you know, over the past couple of years. And, you know, what if we pitched building something to help prevent that? And so 24 hours later on stage, we pitched this idea of a platform to monitor patients and prevent readmissions. And even though certainly the platform today for Seamless is, um, much more advanced than, than that description. Although moderate patients and great readmission is one thing that, that we've done. Um, much of the original pitch is, is still the same. And my point being is that, um, you know, even though I was interested in the topic, it wasn't that I had spent like 10 years being like obsessed with readmission. It was part of it was, you know, I spent a fair bit of time in med school learning about this and diving deeper, um, without necessarily thinking I'm going to build this, but, but I was interested in it. And we decided, okay, let's just pitch this for the idea. We did 24 hours to do it, pitched it and said, you know, you know, not having spent 24 hours to be about how this could be a business, let's at least keep working on this idea. And we just kept going at it and just continued it afterwards. So my point is that we kind of accidentally fell into this a little bit <laughs> and, um, you know, and part of the reason why I didn't start residency, um, after we graduated was that I kind of wanted to see where the business would go. Again, mm -hmm. living accidental, little kind of just like fell into it. Yeah. So, I mean, we, we've, we've now heard like the, your, your, your failed, like my health memo. We've heard about basically how seamless MD started, what it takes to, to build a company such as seamless MD. But I think the glaring, the, the, the glaring sign in my face as someone who is hoping to go into residency is. Can someone who pursues clinical work also start a startup successfully, in your opinion? Yeah, so, so my opinion, I don't think there's ever one right answer um, for, for any of these types of questions. Um, I think it comes down to, to what your goal is. Um, and so in my circumstance, right, when we, you know, we, when we graduate from the incubator, um, 
I was lucky. The youth team was really great for residency. They said, Josh, you know, um, if you want to spend 50, 50 time on both 90, 10 time, whenever you want, we're happy to support you. So I, I'm, you know, I've always been grateful that U of T was willing to be so flexible with me. And I'm not sure, frankly, how many residency programs would, would have done that for, 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 you know, a prospective resident. But ultimately I decided to, you know, go full time on the business. I didn't believe I could do two things. Well, um, I wanted to do, you know, one thing really, really well. The other thing too, is that as a CEO of the company and I was raising investment capital, there's no way that you know, I could responsibly raise this capital and execute, um, knowing that I wasn't some, giving something my full attention. It just wouldn't be fair to our team members or our, our customers or patients and our investors. If I were to say, Hey, I'm, I'm doing two things at once. Um, it's just not fair to them. Um, so, so I, I had a different set of responsibilities given that as, especially the investors coming in. That being said though, I think many great companies or even just projects start off as side projects, right? So I think it, it makes complete sense that as a resident, you start something on the side. And I don't think it's necessarily important that you decide from day one, this is going to be an actual business. I think in many cases, you'd figure out later on if something should be a business and if you want to make it a business. And I think whether or not that ends up happening, doesn't make it any less of an important project or innovation to work on. Um, I just think what you'll find is at some point, if you spend more and more time on it, based on what your ambition is, you may have no choice but to prioritize that over your, your clinical training or your clinical work. So if you decide at some point, hey, this thing is going so well, I actually want, my goal is to put this in, you know, a thousand different hospitals. Could you do that? Juggling residency at the same time? Maybe, right? Um, but you may realize you that- me? <laughs> Well, and I'm saying that at some point you're going to make, you're going to have to decide to make trade-offs and that's fair, that's fair. be realistic about, well, if I want to get this in a thousand hospitals within a certain time frame, can I realistically do that? Not getting yeah, it my yeah. full attention? Maybe you can, depending on how you set it up, but maybe you can't. Um, totally, totally. Okay. Yeah. I mean, like at the end of the day, part of this also rides on the fact that a, that for example, if someone's clinical and wants to wants to start a business that they understand what is a good business idea. So understandably from the business point of view, you have to understand what the addressable market is, what the market size is, whether or not the need is an actual need, but what are some soft markers that, for example, physicians who might not have as much business acumen use to tell whether or not they should approach something as a business versus something as a research project, for example. Yeah, one of the biggest mistakes I see with physician innovators um, thinking about starting a business with their their innovation is the um, the myth that you know, or the misconception that just because something helps a patient or helps a provider, that there's a real business opportunity, that there's a real market for it. The truth is that there are a lot of innovations or products or services that help patients, but that doesn't mean someone's willing to for it. Um, and that's just the sad reality of healthcare. Um, so, and so this goes back to this concept of, is it a paid killer or a vitamin, right? So for those who aren't familiar, generally speaking, you want to build a business where your solution is a painkiller because it means someone's desperate for a solution. So they'll actually buy it. So you have sustainable funding for your business. But if something's a vitamin, if it's a nice to have, it's very hard to get it funded in healthcare, especially when healthcare funding can often be limited or, or, you know, there's very small margins for it. Um, so I can tell you, you know, when we started Seamless, 
you know, here in Ontario, at the beginning, you know, physicians would always tell us, well, if you could, you know, prove with us that it prevents readmissions or emergency room visits or reduces length of stay, of course, the hospital executives here will, will adopt this and pay for it and all that. I can tell you, you know, years ago, we, we proved just that in Ontario, we, we showed hospitals with their own data that we could reduce readmissions by, you know, over 50% and ER visits by almost 50%. And we would take that data to the hospital CEO here in Ontario. And this happened in, in a few different hospitals. And they would say, wow, Josh, this is amazing data. Wow. Like this is just fantastic. But based on the way that these hospitals, our hospitals are funded by the government, um, if I actually save this money here, the government thinks I need less money next year. So it's not real savings for us, right? So again, a case where we're making a difference on a patient's outcome, we're saving costs for the system, but the way that the incentives are designed, it can't be a business here at the time. Whereas in the U.S., because they're paid differently, if I were to be able to reduce length of stay, um, that's actually extra profit for a hospital in the U.S. If I prevented a readmission, um, that's often financially beneficial because more and more hospitals were getting penalized in the U.S. for, for readmissions um, due to Obamacare changes. Um, and so you have to really understand, you know, what are the financial drivers in the market and does it make sense for the business to exist? The other thing too is that, you know, as a hospital, there, even if you had certain priorities as an executive in the hospital to reduce readmissions or improve patient satisfaction, all that kind of stuff, there's a million different products to choose from to help you with that. So, you know, why, you know, unless your product is uniquely ties into a, a major priority of the hospital this year, why would they focus their time and money on your thing that helps patients over the million other things that actually also help patients, right? Not everything can, can is going to be equally important at the same time. And so what's funny is that something like seamless MD, right? To engage and monitor a patient, this was a good idea two years ago, five years ago, right? It was a good idea back then, but it wasn't until, you know, 2020 when COVID happened, when the Ontario government decided to actually invest dollars in, you know, digital patient engagement solutions for, for surgery to reduce the backlog due to COVID, all of a sudden hospitals here who, who weren't interested before were interested in all these hospitals that, you know, could have worked with us a few years ago are working with us now, um, because the government, you know, decided, okay, now we want to invest in this and creative incentives for adoption, even though this was a good idea years ago, even though this improved outcomes and saved money years ago. It, it actually had to be a priority change for the province to get adoption across Ontario. Um, and so that's, that's when you realize, okay, like there are a lot of good ideas in healthcare. There are a lot of things to help patients, but, but that doesn't mean there's going to be a business opportunity that would be sustainable. Um, and that's an unfortunate reality that, um, sometimes as, as clinicians were blinded to, um, and so even before building something, I would advocate, Hey, like really dig deep interview people, interview clinicians, you know, hospital administrators really figure out, is there a, is there a real reason why they're going to buy this? And it can't just be because it helps patients, unfortunately. I guess an interesting way to tie this together is what was it like to have a good idea and no traction? Because like you said, so many others have great ideas and no traction. Uh, a lot of them get bogged down and just quit. What, made you keep going? 
Yeah. yeah. And actually that, that, that ties it to even when you're first starting out, you know, it took us 12 months to get our first hospital uh, pilot contract. Um, I would say for most early stage companies or startups, if you can't get your first user for 12 months, I don't think you stayed in business. It's just, it just seems like a bad idea. So now on the bright side though, if you're able to survive long enough, um, maybe you, you be able to block a competition because it's so hard to get in the first place and survive. Right. So that's the other way that we look at it too. That that's our optimistic way of looking at it. Um, I mean, I think the thing that kept us, I mean, to be honest, I, I don't quite know. I mean, I, I'm actually curious to ask my, my co-founders what they think about that question. But for me personally, um, I think part of it just has to do with the fact that I hate losing slash quitting. Um, <laughs> you know, like I'm the kind of person where if for me, it hurts to lose more than I feel good when I win. And so the, the yeah, you get, I mean, you're not your head there, right? It's like I, and Jeff too, right? It's like, I, I just, in the way, like every company has near death experiences. I mean, we've certainly had our own for some of the reasons you mentioned, right? Um, but for me, it's always about, I mean, part of it was like, I just, I just hate losing slash quitting. And so for me, it's about if, if there's, if there's even a chance that you can come back, even though you're losing, you know, the scoreboard, like I want to know if we can do it Two is that just responsibilities, right? Like for me, it's about, you know, we took, you know, our, our investors harder in capital. We took the you know, belief in our team members to work at an early stage company. Our, our hospital customers early on took a risk working with us. And I definitely felt some responsibility where if this didn't work out, how was that going to impact the rest of the, rest of the ecosystem? So if, if our early, you know, hospital partners, um, you know, didn't work out because seamless, um, you know, fell apart and, and was shut down, that's going to make them honestly, probably more risk adverse going forward. They're going to say, okay, like we're not going to partner with the next early stage startup, or we're going to stay away from digital patient engagement and monitoring for years. Cause we had this horrible experience with that. The company didn't even survive. And so I think. You know, we definitely felt a lot of, I, and I personally felt a lot of responsibility for making sure, and I still feel that, that, that we keep that ball rolling because I can't imagine how detrimental it would be to the ecosystem, the digital health ecosystem, if, if we didn't keep, you know, moving forward. Um, so we don't, we want to be an example of, of how things can go well. And so we definitely feel a lot of responsibility on that. As you mentioned, your co-founders, I'm, I'm kind of curious in your opinion, what, what do you think? Is what characteristics are important in a co-founder for a physician entrepreneur? Yeah, I, I mean, my, my advice is going to be um, probably not going to be medical or physician specific. Um, so I think this is advice that's true for any type of um, company or even just like organization or club. Um, I think two phase come to mind. Um, ideally, one is just um, complementary skill sets. So in our case, it was okay. Well, I brought the clinical background. My team members brought a lot of the you know, technical and engineering and, and, op and operational backgrounds. Um, and the second thing is, oh, and sorry. And that's just to people understand that's because early on your team is small. You want to be able to cover as much ground as a team, right? So if you're all clinical, but none of you are technical, okay. It's great that you have all this time spent understanding the clinical aspects of the problem, but you've no one to work on actually, you know, building the product. So that that's a mismatch. Um, so you want complementary skill sets. And then the second thing is, um, you, you want shared values, mm -hmm. um, because if you don't have shared values, then even though you're both, you both care about solving the problem, you're going to be so different in your approach to solving the problem, or you'd be so different in your approach to how do we build the right culture in our organization? 
And so I don't have a good answer on how to, to solve that besides just spending a lot of time with your, your co-founder and discuss, openly discussing topics ranging from, you know, company culture to how do we, how, what's our approach to solving the problem? How should we build this company? Cause then if there's mismatches, they will just come to light because you would just disagree so much on your approach because your values are so different, right? So I'll give you an example. So, you know, you know, Willie, my, my co-founder CTO, one of the things that he and I align on is the value of speed. So in our company right now, we have three operating principles, speed, simplicity, and customer centricity. And speed for us is about the idea that progress is better than perfect. And shorting the, shorting the time to customer value is important. And uh, most, most things can be course corrected for raw, right? We'd rather just get somewhere quickly, make a decision than course correct and need it. Uh, he and I are very aligned on that, right? Um, and that makes a lot of decisions easy. But if we were misaligned, if, if Willie had said, well, actually, no, Josh, I actually completely disagree. And I think, um, you know, accuracy is more important than speed. And so I'd rather spend an extra few days getting a decision perfectly right and get more information as opposed to, you know, moving quickly on something and maybe making some mistakes. That would lead to probably a lot of arguments and disagreements over many things because we'd be philosophically, um, you know, opposed on, on, a, on a key value. Um, and again, you don't always know ahead of time that you're, you're disagree, but the more you discuss issues, you'll probably find out, okay, we, we, we just don't align on values and you have to, um, and you got to figure it out earlier on. So then one last question before, before the end is it, it seems like if you don't have co-founders that agree with you on values or vision, that it'll create a whole bunch of churn. So from a physician's point of view where time is, is so very rare, how do you find good co-founders? Yeah. I don't, I mean, as someone who has really only done this process once, uh, I don't have a good sample size and a, a playbook for you. Uh, and I'll be honest, you know, when we started this company, right, we were put together, I can tell you that, um, pretty much almost every other team that was put together in the same cohort fell apart because of chemistry issues. And I think maybe only one or two other teams in that same year are still around together because you can't just force chemistry, right? And actually, I think starting the year after that, they, I think they stopped putting teams together and allowed teams to self-select more. Um, so, um, so the point is that you can't force chemistry, you can't force shared values. Um, so really, I think the only thing you can do is, again, it's about exposure, it's about meeting as many people as possible. Um, I mean, look for people with complementary skill sets, um, and just talk to a lot of people and try to find shared values. I, I don't think there's a magic to it. I think, I think most things in building a business, and I think this is true for any profession, there's no magic. It's, it's literally figure out the right thing to do and then being disciplined about executing on it. Um, and then, and then, you know, like you kind of make your own luck because you're just putting a lot of reps it, you know, mm -hmm. um. I mean, yeah. just like, you know, for example, people ask, but how, like, how do you raise capital? It's like, well, you, you ask as many investors as possible and then you get rejected 90% of the time. And then you just, <laughs> you've hopefully asked enough investors that that 10% that said yes, or kind of like, you know, enough to, to kind of, uh, fulfill your capital requirement. But that's the reality of it. Like, unless you're like a super hot company, in which case, you know, you're just doing so well that everyone's throwing money at you, but 99% of companies are not the hot company. Right. And it's about just discipline of just like getting stuff done. Um, that that's really 90% of a company. That makes sense. And 
one question we habitually give our uh, guests the opportunity to, to munch on at the end of every podcast is what's something important to you that you'd like to share with the audience? Do you have the stage? Yeah. Um, gosh, I guess, um, I would say, and I, I mentioned this earlier, but I, I am very big on the idea of follow your curiosity and letting that be your guide as opposed to worrying about kind of being on a set path. Um, I think in medicine, you know, when, when people apply to medicine, for many of us, we're on a path towards medicine, right? And then when you finally get there, you're like, great, I got it. And then, and then they went to med school. It's like, oh, what specialty do you want? You want to go into? You're like, oh my God, I, I got to figure out my path again. Right. Yeah, um, yeah. and it, it's a very, I think it's a very common, um, experience for, for, for folks in who are starting in medicine. And when I, when, but here's the thing, um, five or 10 years from now, right. Or, or this way, imagine, you know, what you think you'll be doing five or 10 years from now. Right. And then imagine five or 10 years from now, you look back, I can almost guarantee you that whatever path you thought you'd be on is going to end up being very different from what you, what you thought it was going to be. Um, the, the point I make is that humans are really bad at predicting the future. One, because we're just bad at it. Two is that so much changes in the future, right? You know, 10 years from now, there's going to be all these jobs and professions, even within medicine that didn't exist today, right? Like imagine 20 years ago, you know, who knew that, you know, telemedicine was a thing, right? It wasn't yeah. really a thing. Maybe it just started, right? But it wasn't really a prevalent thing. Now it is. Um, and you know, what medicine will be like 20 years from now. The point is that for many reasons, it's hard to predict the future. The best that you could do is follow your curiosity, keep like opening doors, keeping willing to go through doors you didn't expect to go through and find ways to be, you know, frankly content with the outcome, right? Maybe, maybe don't, don't be like complacent, but kind of, you know, learn to be content and, and, and you probably will be if you followed your curiosity. Um, that's what I would say. Whether that leads you down starting a business or not, like who cares to be honest, right? Um, mm -hmm. but, but I think if you do that, yeah, you probably won't end up where you thought you were going to end up, but you'll end up at a good place. You'll end up the place that's right for you, whatever that is. Thank you for listening to this episode of How It's Met. If you liked what you heard, please download and rate our episodes on whatever platform you listen on. Also, if you have any feedback on what you just heard, we'd love to hear it wherever you listen to or on our website, howitsmet.com. That way we can create better content that suits you. Till next time, bye-bye.